pandemic was an emergency, but for many American families, they were already living in an emergency. The federal government took radical steps to ease poverty during COVID. Then the programs went away. So what happens next? For Sunday, October 29th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. We'll remember actor Matthew Perry, who reportedly died this weekend at age 54. And what happens when the pursuit of perfection comes at a cost? I started to just be on stage and feel absolutely flooded with nerves in a way that I had never experienced. With Halloween just days away, we'll focus in on horror movies where women do the slaying. I wanted to talk about women in horror who are the antagonists because there's usually a story as to why. And we'll hear from a comedian who decided to interview his mother as she was dying and what he learned from that experience. First News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Israel is expanding its air and ground operations in Gaza. The Israeli military says it exchanged gunfire with Hamas and struck targets in the Palestinian territory today. Speaking on ABC News, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan once again defended Israel's response. Israel was attacked in a brutal, vicious terrorist attack. They are taking steps to go after the terrorists who struck them. And Hamas, this brutal terrorist organization that conducted the attack, is hiding behind the civilian population, which puts an added burden on Israel uh, to differentiate between the terrorists and innocent civilians. Sullivan is also warning of an elevated risk of a broader conflict in the region, Clashes between Israeli forces and the Iranian-backed militant group Hezbollah have escalated in recent days. NPR's Alyssa Nadworny reports from the Israel-Lebanon border. I'm about six miles from the northern Israeli border with Lebanon at the Galilee Medical Center. And here in the north, tensions between the Iran-backed Hezbollah and Israeli forces have intensified in recent days. And the hospital here is working on moving its operations underground and into fortified areas so that they can continue working on patients if the war intensifies. On October 7th, the day that Hamas-backed militants launched a cross-border attack on southern Israel, killing 1,400 people, The neonatal unit for high-risk babies moved its operations immediately underground, and they've been operating there for the last three weeks. Alyssa Nadworny, NPR News, Naharia, Israel. Authorities are investigating a number of shootings that took place across the U.S. this weekend. NPR's Amy Held reports gun violence broke out in Illinois, Indiana, and Florida, leaving several people dead and dozens of others injured. In Tampa, at a Halloween celebration, a fight broke out between groups, and so did the gunfire. We had hundreds of innocent people involved. Police Chief Lee Burkhaw said early Sunday two people were killed 18 hospitalized. Around the same time in Chicago, someone fired into a crowd, wounding 15 people. And in Indianapolis, a party ended with one person shot dead and nine wounded victims ranging in age from 16 to 22. This is just the weekend in the city of Indianapolis. Simone Burris is with the Metropolitan Police Department. This is not something we want our community to have to endure. But more U.S. communities are enduring more mass shootings, nearing two per day on average this year according to the Gun Violence Archive. Amy Held, NPR News. This is NPR News in Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. The founder of the American Repertory Theater at Harvard University has died. Robert Brustein died at his Cambridge home today. He was 96. Brustein started the American Repertory in 1980. He served as artistic director for 22 years. He also started the Repertory Theater at Yale. Boston's new ordinance to clear out the tent encampment at Mass and Cass goes into effect this Wednesday. The order prohibits tents and tarps on public streets and sidewalks. Mayor Michelle Wu says this will help address the crime and increased drug use near Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. Wu tells WCVB's On the Record that social workers have been working with people in the area for weeks to identify the specific needs of people in that area. Dozens of people have already said they are excited and eager to go to this particular space that's been uh, created and, and that they've been connected to. Wu says the city has the programs in place to implement a permanent solution to the crisis at Mass and Cass. It's the first weekend of early voting in Boston ahead of the general election and candidates for city council are out on the campaign trail. District 6 council candidate Ben Weber talked to voters outside of a supermarket in West Roxbury. People here, you know, they, they're engaged. They want to talk about the issues. They're interested in who I am. And, and uh, you meet a lot of the same people over and over again. They're like, oh, we spoke here three months ago. Weber is endorsed by Mayor Michelle Wu. He's running against IT Director William King, who's backed by several incumbent councillors. Early voting will continue throughout the week. The election is November 7th. The Patriots' record fell to 2-6 and six this afternoon with a loss to the Dolphins in Miami. The final score, 31-17. to 17. Rain likely for what's left of the afternoon with temperatures around 50. Rain tonight, 40s. More rain to start the week tomorrow with temps in the mid-50s. Mostly sunny but chilly upper 40s on Tuesday. 50 in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. Joshua Davis recently got kicked off Medicaid. The state of New Mexico, where he lives, says he makes too much money. He makes like sixteen fifty an hour. Davis has an autoimmune disease, and now that he's lost Medicaid, the treatment gets expensive quickly. He bought private insurance, but the monthly premiums are already blowing up his budget. I didn't really have to worry about the costs of my specialty appointments, you know, all the blood work, and then getting the medication for it. Until now... And I'm actually having to jump through just a lot of hoops with my new insurance because they don't want to pay for it. During the pandemic, people like Josh couldn't be kicked off Medicaid. The federal government had declared a public health emergency because of COVID and wanted people to stay covered as the virus swept the country. But that ended earlier this year. And since then, more than 7 million people have been dropped from Medicaid. So even though like the state is well aware of my condition, they weren't going to let me keep Medicaid anyways. They were just basically like, well, now you make too much money in our eyes, so that sucks for you. On top of losing Medicaid, the amount of benefits he was receiving for food assistance was also cut after the pandemic emergency declaration ended. He went from close to $300 a month to like $23 a month. It's pretty pointless. I mean, I can buy like two or three items at the grocery store and that's about it. Angel Jackson is facing a similar problem. She's a single mom in Houston with an eight-year-old son. 
During the pandemic, the expanded child tax credit gave more money to low-income families with children. And for people like Jackson, it made a big difference. My son went to a charter school, so I bought school shirts. I got his, like, haircut. Like, I just, I was able to do, like, small things in small increments. More money for kids, the extra food benefits, and Medicaid protections were all part of a stronger safety net that the country quickly made available in response to the public health emergency that was COVID. Three years later, most of those programs have expired sending millions back into poverty. The beginning of the pandemic was a scary time for everyone. Aside from the deadly threat of COVID-19 itself, as the world shut down, people were terrified of losing their jobs, their health insurance, their homes, and a lot of them did. Amy Bouchard and her husband from Herndon, Virginia, both got laid off during the pandemic. Her first fear was not being able to keep food on the table for their two kids. And our school put out a message to everybody saying, hey, you know, we've got food. There's no paperwork to fill out. There's no income restrictions or guidelines or whatever. Literally, all you have to do is go pick it up. They just want people to have this food during this time. Free school lunches for all public school students, regardless of income, was another piece of the support package from the government during the pandemic. If you needed some extra help in other areas, it was suddenly just there. And many of these benefits came through the CARES Act, also known as the full name, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. It was a $2.2 trillion economic stimulus bill passed by Congress and signed into law by then-President Trump in March 2020. The goal was to keep the country afloat during the pandemic. And among the benefits, stimulus payments, increased unemployment benefits, the Paycheck Protection Program, and others. The CDC issued its temporary halt on most evictions nationwide. The short-term ban would take effect as Today, early as Secretary Friday. DeVos has directed federal lenders to allow borrowers to suspend their student loan payments for at least the next 60 days, and if we need more, we'll... Utility companies can now apply for assistance on behalf of bill payers who are behind because of COVID-19. Like the free school lunches that helped Amy Bouchard's family, several of these programs came with a unique feature. You didn't need to apply. The stimulus payments and expanded child tax credit used existing tax returns to determine eligibility or the amount of the benefit. Bouchard admits that paperwork and wait times would have probably stopped her from taking advantage of the food benefits that kept her family afloat. It was hard enough to convince her husband that they needed it. When I even suggested it to my husband, like, we should go get that food. And he's like, we're not that poor. And I'm like, well, but it's for everybody. And he's like, they're not going to ask me. And I'm like, no. So I know he would have been embarrassed had he had to say we lost our jobs and we can't afford this food. And even setting aside that shame, the Bowshirts fell into food insecurity so quickly after their layoffs that paperwork wouldn't have been helpful anyway. Like our tax return looked like we had money because I had just lost my job, right? Like it wasn't like this was an ongoing thing for us. It was something that was happening right then. So our tax returns wouldn't have helped us. The Bouchards found new jobs and they're back on their feet financially. But many families are always teetering on the edge of a financial cliff. Or if they lose a job or are hit by an emergency, they'd be unable to cover their basic needs. And that's without a pandemic or an economic crisis. Every month is an emergency. Elizabeth Ananat is an economics professor at Barnard. She was also senior economist for labor, education, and welfare at the White House Council of Economic Advisors in 2010. She researches poverty and inequality, and she says that she saw an incredible turnaround for families living with poverty and food insecurity after the child tax credit payments began in 2021. Of course, the pandemic was an emergency, but for 
many American families, they were already living in an emergency, right? When, when families are living below the poverty line, that means they don't have enough money to meet the basic necessities for existence. They're scrambling every month. They're doing things like uh, going to food banks, selling plasma, racking up credit card debt. You know, these families always knew exactly what they would do with an extra $300 a month. And they do it and it makes a difference the second they get it. The child tax credit has gotten so much attention and it makes sense why. Is there one or two other programs that you would single out that if you could magically set federal policy, you would also bring back? Yes. So uh, during the pandemic, SNAP, uh, the program that was formerly known as Food Stamps, which provides nutrition assistance to low-income Americans, uh, was significantly expanded. It's been known for a while that SNAP benefits weren't really high enough to actually cover families' food budgets. But during that pandemic expansion, they were. But it expired in Mm -hmm. in February of 2023. It had made a big difference. Uh, Another thing that was done during the pandemic was an expansion of continued access to Medicaid. So Medicaid is something that basically all poor children and many poor adults are eligible for, but there are usually uh, pretty difficult recertification hurdles that happen pretty frequently in order to stay on the program. Those were waived during the pandemic, but they've just been brought back. Millions of people are losing Medicaid every month, and the evidence shows that it's overwhelmingly not because they're actually not eligible, but because of these procedural hurdles uh, causing challenges. And of course, these programs, particularly the child tax credit, there was a lot of conversation about, well, once we put them in place, if they work, we feel like it'll be easier to keep extending them. That didn't happen. There were many political reasons, but one of them was that there was a lot of concern that this contributed to the inflation we saw the last few years. You're an economist. What do you make about that that argument? Well, I think if we look at other countries, uh, we're actually doing quite well on inflation now. And that suggests that this wasn't what drove that. In the long run, investing in uh, children and investing in our workforce capacity actually helps bring down the inflation rate. And I think we're starting to see that the investments we made there are are helping us in the long run. That was maybe mm-hmm. a plausible story a year ago, but it doesn't seem consistent with the cross-national data now. Then there was another political dynamic that a recent interview we did with Republican Senator Marco Rubio touches on. He said that he is in favor of bringing back the tax credit, but with work requirements. It requires you to have a job because it requires you to have some tax liability that the credit applies towards. But I also think it recognizes that the the purpose of this program always was and should continue to be to allow working parents raising children to be able to keep more of the money they earn to be able to afford or help afford the costs of raising children in the modern economy. I mean, it's not a new argument, but we're hearing it more and more tied to to this particular program. Curious what you make of it. Yeah. So one thing to understand is with those work requirements and that phase in of the tax benefits with earnings, you don't get the poverty relief effects that we saw during 2021 because about a quarter of all American children live in families that earn too little to get the full benefit when it has these earnings requirements. One thing that we have to recognize about our economy is that it takes money to earn money. Right. So there are all these expenses that you have to invest in childcare, getting your car repaired, et cetera, in order to be able to get and maintain a job. And what we saw with the expanded credit was that people use that money to get back in the labor force. One other aspect of all this I want to ask you about was the way that a lot of these benefits were given out. It was almost automatic based on already filed tax returns rather than having people send in applications, uh, submit paperwork. How big of a difference did that make to you? So that makes a huge difference because the more 
paperwork there is, the more boxes you have to check and the more bureaucracy you have to deal with, the more that the people who most need the help don't get it because it takes a lot of resources to navigate all of that stuff. You need good internet connection. You need time to stay on the phone. Uh, you need the right paperwork. And all of that most disadvantages the people who are already stretched the thinnest. And of course, they are the people we most want to help. You're an economics professor, so just forgive me for asking a question about your feelings, because I know that that's outside <laughs> of your realm. But I'm curious what you make of this at this point, because on one hand, these programs, they work. They work pretty well. On the other hand, it is hard to see a combination of, of things that need to happen in Congress and the federal government in the near future that would allow them to be put back in place again. So I'm wondering what you spend more time thinking about right now when it comes to that. You know, what happened with the 2021 tax credit was pretty unique in terms of how we usually help poor families uh, in that that most of the things we've done for poor families uh, have first been tried at the state and local level. And then uh, when they're shown to be successful, they get adopted by other localities and states and eventually they spread to much of the country. And at some point, you know, the country sort of looks at it and says, hey, this is such a good idea that we should really do it at the national level. It looks like at this point, we're back to sort of building that by state and locality momentum, where we do see some states enacting expanded child tax credits themselves right now. And maybe we can get to a place where a lot of children and families are being helped by this. And maybe at that point, we'll get more national momentum. So I look at it as, you know, we're back to the long game. That's Elizabeth Ananat, economics professor at Barnard. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks for being with us on this Sunday afternoon. And stay with us. Coming up next at 6, it's the New Yorker Radio Hour. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. Rain likely 40s overnight. Rain tomorrow. Temps in the mid-50s. Sunny, chilly 40s on Tuesday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, and a co-production with Speakeasy Stage presents The Band's Visit, the Pulitzer Prize-winning musical about surprise connections, shared humanity, and love of music. Coming to the Boston stage for the first time ever from November 10th through December 10th at the Huntington Theater. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. Telephone and Internet service are being restored in Gaza after more than 24 hours of a communications blackout. Israeli forces launched additional air and ground attacks in Gaza overnight. The United Nations warns that civil order is starting to break down in the Palestinian territory. The death toll from an explosion at a coal mine in Kazakhstan has risen to at least 42. The cause of the blast remains under investigation. President Biden is expected to sign an executive order on Monday that will create new protocols for companies creating artificial intelligence. The order comes as Congress works to address the threats from the emerging technology. 
I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. From the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. I can help you. Four words with the power to change someone's life and to help them learn to help themselves. Back from Broken is a podcast from Colorado Public Radio that showcases the courage it could take to come back from mental health struggles. In a recent episode, host Vic Vela spoke with author Natalie Hodges. Hodges started down the path of becoming a professional violinist at a young age and poured everything she had into making her dream a reality. But as she got better, her performance anxiety got worse and worse. I started to just be on stage and feel absolutely flooded with nerves in a way that I had never experienced. And the way that that manifested itself was I actually felt like time had stopped in the performance. And then I would start to get really afraid to perform because I was afraid to feel that. Over time, Hodges was forced to choose between her dreams and her mental health. Here's back from Broken host Vic Vela with the rest of her story. Natalie Hodges kept working to push through her performance anxiety. And she had plenty of success. She went on to study music at Harvard. But that feeling of time stopping during her performances just continued to eat away at her. And she wanted to know why it kept happening. So as a sophomore in a biology class, she did a lot of research on how brains work. There were studies about this stuff. And learning about the neurological science behind it was a huge relief to Natalie. Getting that bit of understanding helped but it didn't mean she stopped chasing her dreams. During Natalie's junior year, she geared up for a competition hosted by the orchestra at Harvard. I wanted to compete. I prepared the Brahms Concerto, which is one of my favorite violin concertos ever. It's, it's so a good beautiful. One. Yeah. I prepared, I think, harder for that than anything I had in my life. And I also prepared smarter. Like I was, at this point, I was getting better at practicing. I was trying to figure out a way to, you know, to be more efficient. So I'm not just blindly, you know, banging my head against the wall, repeating the same runs over and over. So I felt like I had practiced in a very creative way and I felt pretty confident um, going in. And I went in and did my audition and it was actually one of the best performances that I've ever given. Okay. I just, I felt, not only in terms of, I think, how it, how it came out, but just how I felt when I was playing. I felt really free, more creative, and spontaneous. And I knew, right, when that happens to you, you just, you know, like you're making something yep. in time, and it feels good. I gave everything that I had. And uh, I didn't win. I came in second. I, yeah, I was the runner-up. I just remember after I they announced the result, um, and I was like, it was okay. Like I was very happy for the person who won. It was a beautiful day in the fall, 
and I sat there and I just bawled. I just cried. Um, and if I felt like something was kind of like leaving my body, it was all of the tension of that performance, wow. but it was also, yeah, it was a really, it was a really strange moment. It was almost like when you're kind of consciously like falling out of love, like it feels like something is, is go is being released. You're just letting go. You had all these struggles and you were yeah. in your head for so long. And, and finally you just said, wow, I really enjoy how I'm playing right now. And all these feelings are coming out. There was also um, this sense too, that like I played my best and it wasn't enough. And no matter what, it's not going to be enough mm. in terms of a, professional career at the at the level that I want to pursue one and that was the first time that I really knew that I just remember having to make this choice and I'd also majored in English and had really fallen in love with literature and writing during my college experience and I remember actually sitting in the common room of the house where I lived and just thinking like it's not my voice mm. and I didn't really know why I was playing anymore aside from to, to meet these certain standards or to, to soothe the desperation that I felt when I couldn't meet them. Like that was my reason to practice at that point. So it, it didn't really feel like I was saying things with my music. What a revelation. Yeah, you it was know. terrible. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Um, but freeing also. Mm. So Natalie let go of her dream of becoming a professional violinist. But her problems didn't go away. She still experienced anxiety. It just wasn't on a stage anymore. In order for Natalie to truly recover, she needed to get to the bottom of where that anxiety came from. During her senior year, she built on the research around performance anxiety that she had done earlier in her college career. And learning that scientists had observed other people experiencing this too helped Natalie feel like she wasn't alone. Eventually, she wrote a thesis project that combined science and memoir. It was so good, she actually got a book deal after graduating from Harvard in 2019. But a monkey wrench was thrown into Natalie's plans during the pandemic lockdown. I came home and I was working on turning my thesis manuscript into the book, revising it um, so that I could get it published. Because I didn't have violin anymore, because I, I was at this point kind of like, I'm not going to apply to graduate school, that period of my life in which violin is this really central column is done. Like the column has come down. Mm -hmm. And the anxiety, strife, and the purpose that violin had held, all of that didn't have anywhere to go anymore. There was no container for it. There wasn't something that I could just go and do for five hours a day and feel like I was making progress or working on something. Um, I didn't have that anymore. And then I think the confluence of that with COVID, the isolation of yeah. that um, was, was very difficult. That's a lot to deal with. Yeah. And you struggled, right? I did. Yeah. I was lucky to be at my mom's house. I was living with her and then my siblings were all home during that time. So that was a nice element of it that I think really saved me. But basically the uh, the struggle that I ended up having was this surge of intrusive thoughts about anything that you can possibly imagine. Like I really struggled with anxiety about my health, which of course makes sense since it's COVID. Like I thought, you know, I would wake up and think that I had some terminal illness. I would wake up the next day and think I had another terminal illness. I had so many 
terminal illnesses during that time. <laughs> yes, I did, yeah. um, you know, and I have anxiety about other things too. Um, and I would, all these thoughts that it was just so easy to um, latch onto and make real. And I remember just like lying in bed one night and feeling like I literally had, it wasn't a hallucination, but it was this almost visualization of myself. I felt like my head had cracked open and it felt like the the night was pouring in wow to like into my skull what a description yeah it was it was this really like awesome moment in just in the like really um actually terrifying sense of that word and the the largest sense of that word it's been a lot of work to come to to terms with the fact that that is there. But when I think back on it, it's almost like that was maybe at the heart of the performance anxiety, the need for control, right? And I'm sure Violin prevented me from ever feeling that mm. up until that moment yeah. because it was something that promised control. And I had to come to terms with the fact that none of us can do that. Um, and I think that was what unleashed all of that grief and rage and anxiety that had been just bottled up for a really long time. You put it so perfectly. I mean, that's just a lot to have in your head, you know? I think that's what, maybe the image of it cracking open. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and, because you struggled to even get out of bed at that time, right? Yeah. I I did get to a point where I was like, gosh, like I I sort of didn't really know whether I um, wanted to be around to Mm. be experiencing that level of terror every day about stupid things and feeling like the shame of like, why can't I just get over this stuff? Like, why do I have to think I'm having a heart attack when I'm not? Like the frustration with myself, why do I need to sabotage my life in this way? Um, And so that, of course, I mean, as anyone who's struggled with anything like this knows, the compounding shame of going through that doesn't make it better. Without the violin to anchor herself to, Natalie needed a new outlet. All those hours that used to go into practicing started to get filled with other things. Writing became a way for her to feel grounded again, so she focused on her manuscript. She also started focusing on her mental health. I found this um, really wonderful therapist who uh, basically pulled me out of that night. That's great, yeah. because people need to hear that, that there are answers to these Mm -hmm. things, right? There is help for you if you need it. Yes, there is. And I remember I I called her. She was actually the first therapist I found because I Googled therapist health anxiety Colorado, and her (laughs) name came up. And I called her, and I just remember being very embarrassed by myself as I was going on this long tangent of, oh, my God, I deal with all of these. Like, blah, 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 these are my thoughts in this 10-minute consultation. And she was very quiet. And then after I said all of that and I was like pausing to breathe, she said, I can help you. Just those words, those four words, to be told that by another person, like a stranger, like that sentence made one of the biggest differences in my life. To know I wasn't past repair and that just somebody would even care enough to say that. That's beautiful. Just a little, just a little sentence, I can help you. Yeah. Just four words. Mm-hmm. It's so powerful. It was so powerful. They changed my life. She changed my life. 
Natalie started regular sessions with her new therapist to help her work through the anxiety she was feeling and process all these pent-up emotions. She was diagnosed with obsessive-compulsive disorder. And the more she learned about OCD, the more she was learning about herself and how her negative thought patterns were holding her back. I would describe it as a stuckness that results from a thought that you don't want to have, which is called an intrusive thought. Um, and everyone has those, but most people are able to brush them off pretty easily, be like, oh, that was weird that I just thought that. But with OCD, people, a thought pops into their minds like, oh, um, like a very common example is, did I not turn off the stove yep. when I left the house? And instead of just saying, oh, I, I probably did, I remember that, as someone with OCD would be like, I, I think I remember it, but what if the house is going to burn down yep, and yep. I will be responsible for killing my pet or my neighbors? And you're now, just kind of torturing yourself with the thought. Exactly. Now it's not just maybe I didn't turn off the stove. It's me. I'm going to be a murderer because I didn't yeah. turn off the stove. And then the third element that I would say, and I'm not a clinical expert in this by any means, but is that you have to do what's called a compulsion or a behavior to soothe the thought and make sure that the worst case scenario isn't going to happen. And then your brain is like, did you lock the door, right? Yeah. And it's all of that whole process all yeah, over again. It just takes off. Yeah. So how did you get better? Yeah. <laughs> it's still, I mean, it's still it's ongoing. It's a work in progress. Yeah. I guess, like, it's weird to say, like, what I like about this diagnosis. But what's really interesting to me about it is that having to be okay with uncertainty is so fundamental to the human condition, right? That's something that everybody, like, with that diagnosis or not has to grapple with at some point in their lives and so it's easy to just say oh it'll be fine or to focus you know for me really hard on violin so I didn't have to deal with that and to give myself this semblance of control um, but losing violin and then having to deal with this demon I'm grateful for it in the end because I had to grapple with that really fundamental uncertainty that you know goes back to our mortality and our place in the universe and all of those things that sounds hokey but I had to confront it in a way that I never had been challenged to before, mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. It's made me want to live better, to be a better person, a kinder person, to love harder. So I'm, I'm actually grateful for that in the end, even though some days it is still hard to get out of bed. Natalie's book is called Uncommon Measure, a journey through music, performance, and the science of time. Natalie Hodge's story was featured on the Colorado Public Radio podcast, Back from Broken, where host Vic Vela talks to people about their struggles and what it takes to make a comeback. And if you or someone you know is in crisis or considering suicide, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. This is NPR. Matthew Perry, star of the hit TV sitcom Friends, has reportedly died at age 54. Several news outlets, including the Los Angeles Times, have quoted unnamed law enforcement sources to say that Perry was found unresponsive in a hot tub at his home Saturday after an apparent drowning. There's been no official cause of death released yet. An actor since his teenage years, Perry was best known for playing the charming, sarcastic Chandler Bing on Friends. Perry, who grew up in Canada, spoke with Terry Gross on Fresh Air in 2007 about having a dad who was a working actor. So your, your father was the guy who did the commercials on TV for Old Spice? 
Yeah, that's actually led to most of my problems because my father is the handsomest man in the world. <laughs> so uh, that's led to why I look at myself on TV in the first place and also why I immediately go to the problems. He saw his dad succeed, but also saw him fail and saw the pauses between success that comes so often in show business. You know, his, his big lesson to me was to make sure that there's something else in your life that is um, more important than... Uh, than acting or you'll go bananas. And so I've tried to follow that, and I know that he uh, feels that way too. Perry was honest about his intense struggles with addiction, as NPR's TV critic Eric Deggins recounted on Weekend Edition. Perry released a memoir last year where he talked a lot about his issues with substance use, saying he first started drinking heavily as a teenager, and by the mid-1990s, while he was making friends, he was addicted to painkillers like Vicodin. He later entered multiple rehab programs and became an advocate for helping those with substance use disorders. Uh, during an interview with the CBC last year, Perry said it was tough for him to watch old reruns of Friends because he could see the effects of his addictions. Let's listen. I didn't watch the show and haven't watched the show because I could go drinking, opiates, cocaine. Drink, like I could tell season by season by how I looked. I think I'm going to start to watch it because it's been an incredible thing to watch it touch the hearts of different generations. The show did reach several generations of fans. It was a decade-defining cultural juggernaut in the 90s. Nearly 10 years after it went off the air, NPR's Louisa Lim found a recreation of the Friends Gang's main hangout, Central Perk, in Beijing. I'm crazy about Friends. I'm a huge fan. For me, it's, it's like a religion. It's my life. I just wonder, though, because I think for young Chinese people, mm. life is really competitive, you know, getting an education, yeah. passing your exams, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. finding a job, finding a partner. Yeah. It's all like a big competition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whilst friends, they're never worrying about yeah. money, they're yeah. never worrying about yeah. jobs and yeah. things yeah. like that. So that's why we like friends. We are looking for this kind of life. Maybe one day, if you like, you can find a good job you like. Just like Chandler, he quit the job he hated, and he find another one. He like it. So I think this TV show also told us you have to choose a living way, which you like. And as a mainstay on streaming apps, Friends became a cultural force again in recent years, this time for Gen Z viewers. So even though Perry, as Chandler, said goodbye in the finale nearly 20 years ago. You look around, you guys. This was your first home. And it was a happy place, filled with love and laughter. But more important, because of rent control, it was a friggin' steal. The character never stopped being a mainstay in people's lives. Matthew Perry was 54 years old. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks so much for being with us. Stay with us. The New Yorker Radio Hour at 6. And host David Remnick talks with guests about the Hamas attack of October 7th, Israel's retaliation, and whether any prospect for peace in the region remains. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. 
cambridgeculinary.com. The Regent Theatre in Arlington, presenting a wide variety of music and dance concerts, independent film, and multicultural events. Tickets and info at regenttheater.com. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade, museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. Stanhopeframers.com. The United Nations World Food Program says some of its aid supplies were looted in Gaza. The agency says that thousands of people had broken into some of its warehouses, taking wheat, flour, and other basic necessities. Conditions remain dire in Gaza more than two weeks after the conflict broke out. Authorities in Florida are investigating a shooting at a Halloween celebration in Tampa last night. Two people were killed and 18 others were wounded. Memorial services are being held today in Lewiston, Maine, to remember the 18 people who were killed in a mass shooting last week. The suspected gunman was later found dead. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from Subaru. Subaru has donated more than $51 million to support the adoption, rescue, transport, and health of more than 420,000 animals. Learn more at Subaru.com pets. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. It's nearly Halloween. For many people, that means it is peak horror movie binging season. In recent years, we have had All Things Considered producers on the show around this time of year to talk about horror movies and to recommend some to us. And today we have producer Brianna Scott, who loves horror in a way that I truly just cannot understand. Hey, Bri. Hey. One of our first conversations was about this. I Mm -hmm. truly hate horror movies. Yes. Um, You love them. You love them so much that you have a Michael Myers tattoo. I do. It's on my leg. What? (laughs) What for you is the appeal of this genre? What I love about horror is the shared universal experience so many of us have while watching it. That terror, that dread, being on the edge of your seat, your heart racing. And I respect why a lot of people like yourself don't like horror movies. I respect it. I just don't choose to sit through them. <laughs> you don't want to put yourself through that trauma. It's too much. But I do. Okay. Uh, and, and I love horror because it can evoke so many emotions other than fear and terror. Some horror is dramatic and comedic, and I just love that the genre is so versatile. We were thinking about what kinds of horror movies we wanted to highlight, and you had a really interesting idea. You wanted to focus on films where women do the killing. Why do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, women are the ones usually being killed in horror movies. (laughs) And so I wanted to talk about women in horror who are the antagonists because there's usually a story as to why. So spoiler alert for everything going forward. uh, What is the first movie that you want to talk about? Yeah, so the first film I want to discuss is The Faculty. It's a horror sci-fi creature film. So the plot of this film is that the faculty at the high school are being infected by an alien parasite that is changing their personalities. I'm Mary Beth Louise Hutchinson. I really love what you've done with your nose ring. It really brings out the color in your eyes. Mary Beth is this character who comes off 
a little bit annoyingly sweet and innocent. She's accepting of everyone that she comes across at the school, no matter how different um, they are or how ostracized they are at the school. And that's basically part of her motivation for spreading the infection. You know, high school is such a weird time where a lot of teens feel alone, Mm -hmm. alienated, no pun intended, uh, different, (laughs) weird. They don't feel accepted or that people understand who they are. What movie is up next? Yeah, so the next movie I want to talk about is Pearl, which is the second installment in what is a trilogy by Ty West. And Pearl, the name of our movie, is also our killer. I'm not staying on this farm! Pearl is stuck on this farm with her overbearing mother and her father who is ill. And all Pearl wants to do is get off this farm. She wants to go off and be a big movie star. And that's basically what she fantasizes about all day. Mm-hmm. And the emotional and physical neglect that Pearl faces, the invalidation she suffers from her mother, it all culminates in Pearl cracking. Please, I'm a star! But the thing is, Pearl doesn't just want to be famous and and be a star. She wants to be accepted. Mm -hmm. She ultimately wants to be loved, even if she's looking in all the wrong places. So this this last one, I was excited to hear because I know it. I've heard of it. Fear Street, because it's by Mr. Mm -hmm. R.L. Stein of Goosebumps fame. The truth shall be your curse. Absolutely, yes. Fear Street is a full trilogy that was dropped on Netflix in 2021. We spend pretty much those first two movies under the impression that Sarah Fear is truly our antagonist. But in the last film, it's revealed to us that Sarah Fear is actually kind of a hero. She was hanged. This was kind of back during the the Salem witch trial days for being a witch. But she was also seen as a witch because she was queer. She was, you know, quote unquote different. Um, And so what I love about Fear Street is the fact that it it really is kind of an, an empowering series for queer women in particular. Sarah Fear stayed true to herself until the very end, even when she was hung. And because of that, eventually she finally gets to reclaim her truth. So what do you think connects these three films? And how do you think that's different from most horror movies in your mind? Well, let's kind of go back to the beginning with my Michael Myers tattoo. Michael Myers had no backstory in that first film. He was just killing to kill. And that is kind of typically how a lot of horror is. It's changing, I think, nowadays, but usually the killers don't really have any motive or it kind of lacks substance in my mind. Yeah. Um, and so when it comes to women in horror films who are the antagonists, I'll put a spin on a quote from Randy Meeks in Scream. Motives are not incidental for women. I don't condone the violence. (laughs) I want to make that clear. Um, What I'm saying is that with all the movies that we talked about, what they all have in common is that we're talking about acceptance, being yourself, living your truth, and being loved for it. And that is something that I can get behind. All things considered, producer Brianna Scott, thanks for talking horror movies with me. Thank you. Happy Halloween. You too. When comedian Duncan Trussell interviewed his dying mother, she told him something. The closer I get to physical death, she said, the more alive I feel. In this week's Enlighten Me, Rachel Martin talks to Trussell about that experience and what he learned from it. Okay, so I hope Duncan Trussell doesn't take this personally, but I didn't know who he was before I watched his Netflix show called The Midnight Gospel. But after a couple of episodes, I was hooked. I had to know more about the guy because this show is so bizarre. And I mean that as a compliment. Real life conversations about the biggest existential questions from Duncan's podcast are then laid over top these wacky yet genius animated videos that are created by his friend Pendleton Ward. At first, it seems like some drug-induced fever dream. Like, why am I listening to writer Anne Lamott talk with this dude about alcoholism and grief and God as her voice is coming out of a blue dog with deer antlers? 
Or the episode where Duncan's moving conversation with his mom, as she's suffering from cancer, is laid over top an animation where we see her and Duncan die and get reborn over and over again while she tells him what she needs him to understand before she drops her body, as he would say. But the longer you live in Duncan Trussell's world, the more it all starts to make sense, I think. Or maybe it doesn't. And that's okay because it feels like a safe place where you can say things you've never said before. And there are no wrong answers because everything is absurd. And why not scream and wail at all the things that hurt us? But also why not laugh, even through the hardest of things? That's where this conversation starts, at the hardest of things. When my mom finally passed, uh, I went crazy. Like all the stuff that I'd read about grief and it's a roller coaster, it's not normal sadness and all the stuff that you read and you're like, whoa, that sounds horrible. Like, and then suddenly you're just out of your mind. You don't even realize how out of your mind you are. And that other weird thing happens, which is you become a accidental grief counselor. <laughs> like other people are grieving and suddenly you have just been like sobbing, considering like, like wetting the bed instead of going to the bathroom you're like giving this like lofty grief advice to say well let me tell you about how to handle grief you're like, oh you're my like, god that <laughs> totally resonates with it. so my mom my mom died i think a year before your mom died my mom died of cancer in 2012. sorry and i remember even just a few months later i went to one of my dearest friend's weddings and I was just in this, you know, that weird fog of yeah. grief. But and it's all you can think about. Everybody was getting up to give toasts at the reception, or a few handpicked people. I was not one of them. And then all of a sudden, I was just like, I feel moved to speak Good in this you. moment and to talk about the significance of life and death. And yeah. I mean, whatever. I think everybody was like. Poor Rachel. Let's not give her too hard a time. Like she's going through a thing. But you do. It's all you can think about. Yeah, and I think it's a beautiful thing that you did that. Very brave and good. People are so afraid of death. They want to avoid it at all costs. So someone right next to it, then becoming the mouthpiece of it. That's probably a little too much for people who just wanted to talk about how cool your mom was, you know? Right, not right. like, this is going to happen to all of us. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think that's great you did that. I want to talk more about your mom because she seemed awesome based on um just what i've read and she you, was you did this amazing interview with her for your podcast and then you turned it into an episode for the midnight gospel which is this very amazing series on netflix thank you the closer i get to physical death the more alive i feel and the more present i feel and the more real i am how did that interview come to be? Well, you know, she was very close to dying. The one you heard on the Midnight yeah. Gospel. And I was doing everything I could to avoid what was happening. Everything I could. I was reading The Hunger Games on my Kindle. <laughs> so anyway, she called me up to her room. Ah. I knew she wanted to do a podcast, but I was so heartbroken and I, I just I don't I knew it would be our last right podcast right when my mom was going through the same thing I remember thinking oh this is my thing this is what I do I talk to people and yeah. we share these intimate conversations 
And I remember thinking, I don't want to do that. I was in denial too, because to somehow do that was was like the end. The like end. I was asking my mom for these big thoughts and that that was going to be the end of her. So yep. I can't, I, it's brave of you to have decided like, okay, mom, yeah, yeah, let's do this. Thank you. Yeah, I remember dying people have this present moment awareness. They have like, you know, they there's something happening there where they're, they're in the truth. They're experiencing truth as it is. And meaning they don't tiptoe around anything anymore. Now, when I watch that episode, which is still hard for me to do, I realize she's telling me things that she knew I would want to hear later. Yeah. And that she knew I wasn't hearing now. Yeah. And because she knew I would listen to it later. So I'm so grateful to her for that, that she was smart enough in like her last few weeks of life to sort of give me something to answer the questions that I would have asked her now that I have kids if she were still alive. So it was a, a wonderful thing that she did and that's how it came about. And so then for it to like end up on the Midnight Gospel and now, you know, every week people tell me how much it helped them with their grief or letting go of someone. I could just see her smiling. Like she would think that was very wonderful that somehow that happened, that it spread all over the place. Is there something that you can point to that you learned from that conversation yes. only later? Yeah, a hundred percent. She was sort of in a very graceful way trying to talk about what lasts, you know, and, and clearly the body doesn't. Just If you look at the world, what you see is things appearing and disappearing. And humans are a part of the whole of that. And humans appear and they disappear hmm. off the face of the earth. That just happens. I think she was talking about in a very simple, beautiful way, the body is gone. But, you know, what was animating the body? Or, or another way to put it would be, if you pull away all of the quirks and the good things and the bad things of in your parents' personality, and as a parent now, having experienced the raw primordial love you feel for your kids, to me, I think somewhere in there is all moms that's all moms and i think that's what she was trying to say is that you know you will always have access to this love which i think is if your mother or a parent or someone you love says something to you that heals you or or, or transforms you i think its origin point is that love that's where it came from and it goes through many layers of personality identity ego mm. takes on its own characteristics based on the karma of the person saying it but at its core it's like born from that place and so i think she was trying to say that to me uh or, or teach me that so that i would have a way to connect with her after she dropped her body it's funny i've actually i've never um talked about this before but the last time i saw my mom at her you know at home she was in hospice and like the last thing she said to me I, I was asking a question because i was also in that like desperate like tell me things about the world and i, I don't <laughs> yeah. know what to do without you i might get a little sad but i asked her what she thought happened when we die right and she sat up 
uh, which was a big deal. And she said, so much love. And I've thought about the construction of that because it, it, it's not that she was going to feel so much love. It's that love was going to happen. Like mm-hmm. she used it as an action. Like what happens when we die? Answer, so much love yeah. happens yeah. when we die. And it can seem so simple, right? Everybody talks, oh, love, 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 love. Yeah. But it's so much more powerful than our language permits. Yeah. When people say love, it means a million different things. Yeah. It, it depend, you know, and, and so there's that sort of love. And then there's the love where you dissolve in it. And the, the bhakti love, the love where, yeah. you know, it breaks your heart. Because you have to have your heart opened up to get there. That's why they say, oh, it's heartbreaking. It's a good kind of, it's, I don't think it even break, I, the term heartbreak in this context, uh, I think it means it breaks the shell that you, or the armor that you have grown around your heart and mm. spent so much time welding together your whole life. You've been working on this thing, but it's like you were working on it when you were very young. So it's like, look at any like five-year-old's drawing of like an airplane or armor. That's what you have around your heart, a sort of cobbled together series of things you picked up from cartoons or whatever you thought would protect you and you welded it together with your mind. That's what breaks. And that's a really terrifying thing for that thing to break because you think you're going to get destroyed um, and, and or hurt. And when the, it's the opposite. It's like, my God, you've been walking around like imagine if you had a five-year-old blacksmith who didn't know much about blacksmithing weld you armor you had to wear for the rest of your life. It's not going to be comfortable. <laughs> I love that idea, though, and that the 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 heartbreak is the liberation. Yeah, actually. Yeah. Duncan Trussell, he is the host of the Duncan Trussell Family Hour and the co-creator of The Midnight Gospel on Netflix. 